Well, good morning. It's good to be with you once again. The flight from Chicago was uneventful until I got to the Houston airport. And the doors opened, and I felt like I was walking into an oven. I felt like Daniel going into the fiery furnace. Whoa, I went from 76-degree high temperatures to 90-something degree high temperatures. So what a shock. Welcome to Texas, right? And the other eventful thing was when Scott was looking for me in the airport. Scott and Kimon came to pick me up at the airport, but I decided to play hide-and-seek on them, unbeknownst to them. Now, actually, my phone wasn't working. They couldn't get a hold of me. And instead of going to the arrival side, I went to the departure side of the airport. I guess I liked the flight so much I wanted to do it again. But fortunately, he cheated. He used the internet, found my face on the internet, which is a scary thought, my face and being on the internet, and he found me. So thank you guys for the ride here. So before we get into the message today, I'd like you to take your notes page from your bulletin, and if you're a stickler uh, for things being just right, what you're going to need to do is either take a pen or pencil and scratch that passage out or fold it over like this if you'd like to, okay? So if you're a stickler for things being all in order, you're going to need to do those things so you're not going to be kind of distracted. Or if you want to, just go ahead and tear up the thing. I hope I'm not defaming anything, but just just do that. Okay. I'd like to uh, go to another passage of Scripture today. I'd like to go to Leviticus. Yes, it is a book in the Bible. It's in that Older Testament. We rarely go there, but I would like to do that today. So Leviticus 23. Do you know that people the world over celebrate holidays? All kinds of holidays. In fact, there is not a nation or a people group anywhere on this planet that does not have its unique days of celebration or its unique days of remembering something. And when you stop to think about it, Thousands, thousands of holidays are celebrated the worldwide every year. But in stark contrast, the God of the Bible, the creator of heavens and earth, has chosen to institute a limited number of holidays. The God of the Bible has chosen to institute only seven holidays. And those holidays are called the Feasts of the Lord. Once you begin to study these seven feasts in any kind of detail, you will begin to see them appearing all throughout the Old and the New Testaments, either individually or collectively. They're everywhere in the rest of the Scriptures. And these seven feasts are all throughout the Bible because they're not just history of the people of Israel, but they serve a divine prophetic purpose for God's plan of redemption throughout all time. They were designed and instituted by God to foreshadow 
the redemptive work of Jesus Christ, who is the Savior of the world and the anointed Messiah of Israel. In studying these feasts of the Lord, it becomes obvious that they can be grouped into two major groups. The first four are what we might call the spring feasts of the Lord. The last three are feasts that happen in the fall of Israel's agricultural calendar. These first four spring feasts of the Lord foreshadow, picture, the redemptive work of Christ at His first coming. When He came to planet Earth as the Lamb of God, to take away the sin of the world. And those remaining three fall feasts also picture the work of Christ when He comes back again to planet Earth to establish His kingdom and to reign and to rule in righteousness. Now the first question I'd like for us to think about is, why seven? Why did God institute Seven feasts. Why not one less? Six. Why not one more? Eight. Why not ten? Why seven? There are a number of reasons. I think in the text in Leviticus 3, it talks about the Sabbath day, God working, six days, resting the seventh, setting up a week, seven. There's that element there as well. But some Bible teachers like to use that number seven. They see it throughout the Scriptures as a picture of something. As a picture of completion. As a picture of perfection. As a picture of fullness. And so some would say, here God is revealing to us in shadow picture form His plan of redemption in all of its fullness in these seven feasts. I invite you to Look with me at Leviticus 23. And here in Leviticus 23, we find all seven feasts listed in chronological order. And perhaps about now, some of you are thumbing through the chapter and looking, oh my, I'm seeing 40-something verses. Does this young buck think he's going to make it through 40? No, 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 no. We're not going through all seven feasts today. We're just going to go through the first one the Feast of Passover. And all of God's people said, Amen. Brother, come to your senses. Let's read verses 1 and 2 to to launch us into this study of the Feast of Passover. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Speak to the people of Israel and say to them, These are the appointed feasts of the Lord. You shall proclaim as holy convocations. They are my appointed times. If you have the King James translation, it renders this expression as the feasts of the Lord. The NIV employs a more literal rendering by translating it the appointed feasts festivals of the Lord. The Hebrew word used here for feasts or festivals is moed. And it quite literally means 
an appointed time, an appointed season. And so the expression, the appointed times of the Lord is more precise. And this expression emphasizes two facts about these festivals, these national festivals that the people of Israel were to engage, to employ. Number one, these festivals or these holidays are designed by God. They were not invented by or even instituted by the Jewish people. They are not the Jewish festivals. They are not the Jewish feasts, although the Jewish people today will call them that. In fact, today is a Jewish festival. Did you know that? Today is the festival of Shavuot for the Hebrew people. For the Christian church, today is the day of Pentecost. It is a feast day. Maybe I should have spoken on that one, but I want to take them in chronological order. And so these holidays are designed by God. They're not the imaginations of people. They're not the creation of humanity. They're not the brainchild of a person or a group. God designed these. And that leads us to the next point. In verse 2, God tells Moses to make my feasts known. They are God's feast. To be sure, the people of Israel will play a very important role in carrying out all the details of these feasts, of these national festivals every year. But the Jewish people did not conceive of them. When a student of the Scripture begins to delve deeply into these feasts and sees them referenced, referred to elsewhere in the Scriptures, they begin to see there are a lot of prophetic details in every one of them. And you come away with the realization that there are so many predictions and fulfillment of these feasts in the life of Christ in His first coming that they could not have been conceived by humanity. They're not the product of the human mind. They are really the product of of a divine being, the God of the Bible, so profound that they can only come about through divine revelation. Notice in verse 2 that these feasts are quite literally appointments. They're appointments that God made. He did not ask the Hebrew people, take out your calendars and let's discuss what's going to be a good time for you. He didn't do that. He made the appointments. They're made by Him. So he prescribed not only when the people were to come together, but how they were to come together and what they were to do when they were to come together. This is all by divine revelation, a prescription from God that his people were expected to follow. You know, when a person in authority, say your supervisor at work, or say a circuit court judge, if you find yourself on that side of the law, summons you to a meeting and gives you an appointed time to meet, you have a very important decision to make at that point in time. So you have to ask yourself, well, 
Do I clear, clear my busy schedule and choose to make the appointment, choose to show up at the time that's been told to me? Or do I just simply blow off the meeting? Now, if you like to live dangerously, I would suggest the latter option. But of course you show up because you want to avoid the dire consequences that might come after should you make a foolish decision of not doing so. A few years, a fear, a few years back, I had a very important, important appointment to keep. And it wasn't scheduled by me. It was scheduled for me. It was scheduled by an Illinois State Trooper who wrote a specific date and a specific time on the ticket. In fact, he even checked the box that said, you must appear before the judge. Now, can you believe the nerve of that guy? Never once in my transaction with him did he say, listen, take out your planner, take out your calendar, and let's see if this date works for you. Never once did he do that. The nerve of that guy. I'm a busy man. I have a busy schedule to keep. No, he just expected me to clear my schedule and to keep the appointment that was given to me. So, should I choose to ignore the appointment? <laughs> no, I'm no fool. I drove all the way from Dubuque, Iowa to Freeport, Illinois. I showed up. And when my name was called, I stood up. And when the judge said, how do you plead? I spoke up. Guilty as charged, sir. And then I walked over to the cashier's window and I paid up so that I could get my license returned. I was guilty. My family and I were returning from a trip to Chicago to Dubuque and I not only was speeding, but I had three little ones at the time in the back seat, none of whom had their seatbelts on. Three seatbelt offenses on top of the speeding ticket. Now that is a steep fine. But the judge was merciful. And he cut the fine in half. My daughter, however, was not so merciful. And when I got home, she wrote me a speeding ticket for $5,000. You know, that day, I think it was impressed upon me and I acknowledged something, that in the courthouse, their schedule didn't revolve around my schedule. Their doings, their ongoings, had nothing to do with me if I could make it or not. It's not about me. I'm just a little fish in a very big pond. And I think the people of Israel came to realize that as well. That it's not about them. God chose these people and He set them apart so that they would carry out His purposes, His plan. And we see that plan here in the Old Testament, in Leviticus 23. These feasts were designed by God 
to communicate His eternal plan of redemption. In fact, we can read in Ephesians chapter 1 that talks about God's redemptive calendar. And in fact, these seven events, according to that scripture, were determined before even the foundations of the earth was laid. And so these feasts are not just a part of Israel's heritage. There's something much deeper going on here. There's something more universal going on here. Notice in verse 2 that the nation of Israel was given a mission from God. They were to come together as a nation and they would proclaim a holy convocation. The Hebrew word for convocation is mikra. And it simply means coming together for the purpose of a rehearsal. About a month ago, I went to a rehearsal. I showed up for a graduation practice the day before my students graduated from college. And the program was already planned out. So my job wasn't to impact that. My job simply was to know what the program was, to walk when I was supposed to walk, to stand where I was supposed to stand, to sit where I was supposed to sit. Everything was programmed out for me. But we had to go through that practice before the actual event. And that's what the people of Israel were to do. They were to do these feasts as a dress rehearsal, as a practice before the actual event, which would take place thousands of years later. They were just going through dress rehearsals. They were foreshadowing what the Messiah would do when He came to save the world. And so these seven feasts are designed by God as dress rehearsals for the nation of Israel to show what the Messiah would do in the future. How He would save His people from their sins. How He would restore the nation and restore the world to an eternal relationship with God. In fact, the author to the Hebrews and the Apostle Paul in Colossians, the book of Colossians, they all talk about what the Hebrew people did at their temple. And they said all of these things that the Hebrew people did at their temple were really shadows, shadow pictures of the good things yet to come. And so they were just showing the world what God was going to do one day. We find the Lord's instructions for the first feast given in verses 4 and 5 of Leviticus 23. It's also reiterated in Deuteronomy 16, but we'll stick to this text today. And so let's take a look at verses 4 and 5. These are the appointed feasts of the Lord, the holy convocations, which you shall proclaim at the appointed time for each of them. In the first month, on the fourteenth day of the month at twilight, is the Lord's Passover. And on the fifteenth day of the same month is the Feast of Unleavened Bread to the Lord. And for seven days you shall eat unleavened bread. When the Lord gave these instructions 
about his feasts to the nation of Israel. He had not yet revealed to them the place where these feasts were to take place. The original Passover took place in Egypt. But God also had a divinely appointed place where they would do these things, these dress rehearsals. He had not yet revealed that Jerusalem would be the location of his temple, of his dwelling with them, and of the feasts. And this really didn't happen until the time of King Solomon. But God had foreshadowed that Jerusalem would be the place someday. He foreshadowed Jerusalem in Genesis 22, verse 2, when he instructed Abraham to take your son, your only son, Isaac. I want you to take him to a place that I will show you on one of the mountains of Moriah. And I want you to sacrifice him there. And so when Abraham follows the Lord's instructions and he and the lad leave the servant and they go up to the place where the Lord shows them on Mount Moriah, Isaac says, Dad, we've got the fire, we've got the wood, but where is the lamb for the sacrifice? And Abraham, acting as a prophet of God, prophesies, the Lord will provide a lamb for himself. Of course, speaking immediately, the Lord provided that ram in the thicket, but speaking prophetically of how Christ would come to this location and die a substitutionary death. King David later conquered Jerusalem, the city wall there on that mountain range, and he he renamed it Jerusalem, and he made it the capital city. And then on a higher peak, just north of the city of David, the Bible tells us that Solomon built a house for the Lord, a temple. And perhaps this is the location where God led Abraham to offer his son Isaac as a sacrifice 2,000 years earlier. And it is the place where God would provide for himself a lamb. The very first Passover is recorded in Exodus 12. And it occurred some 3,500 years before. In celebrating this feast, the people of Israel were commemorating their emancipation from Egypt, from slavery in Egypt. And while they were going through all of these details that God spelled out to them, it's quite possible that they did not understand what God was picturing to take place in the future. And so the Passover event must be understood in two ways. It must be understood historically as the people of Israel did, their emancipation from Egypt, but it also must be understood prophetically what God would do through Christ. Rather, 1,500 years later, as the temple was built in Jerusalem. And God regulated that the Passover take place on the 14th day of the first month. But according to Exodus 12, verse 3, preparations for this Passover feast actually started on the 10th day of the month, of that first month. And on that 10th day, each household was required to select 
a lamb. Their family's lamb. And it had to be a male lamb. It had to be at least one years old. And it had to be a lamb without blemish. They were to take that lamb that they selected, meeting those qualifications, and they were to separate it from the flock. They would take that lamb and they would bring it into their homes to live with their family for five days until the 14th day. Why is that? Why did God have them on the 10th day select the lamb, bring it into their homes so that on the 14th day it could serve as their sacrificial Passover lamb? There could be a number of reasons why. I think of a couple having the lamb live with the family would give them the needed time to fully inspect it. To really see if this lamb serving as my family's Passover lamb did meet the qualifications of being blameless, without blemish. That it didn't have any defilement. But I think another reason why they would bring the lamb into their homes is so that the family would become emotionally attached to that lamb. And in so doing, it would deeply impress upon the children and the parents the costly nature of a substitutionary sacrifice. They understood in flesh form that an innocent one would have to die in their place. You can imagine how it would tear at the hearts of the children who probably fell in love with this new, cuddly, family pet. In fact, they may even give it a name. Maybe if mom and dad were wise, said, don't give it a name. We don't want to get that attached to it. But they would become attached to this. And only five days later, they would have to kill it for the purpose to deal with their personal sin. And not only that, they not only had to slay it at the temple, but that night, everyone in the house would have to partake of its flesh. They would have to eat of that lamb. Jesus, in the Gospel by John chapter 6, says this, I tell you a solemn truth. Unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man, you have no life in yourselves. Unless you drink His blood, you have no life in yourselves. It is the one who eats My flesh and drinks My blood. It is He who has eternal life. And I will cause Him to be raised up on the last day. Jesus spoke those words. He was referring to this tradition. The Passover lamb tradition. It's language of intimacy. It's personally making the sacrifice my own. Even to the point where I ingest its flesh and make it my own. To prepare for my middle daughter's sixth birthday some years ago, I took her to our local Hobby Lobby. And she was to pick out a piñata. 
of all the piñatas that she could have picked out, the mass of piñatas hanging in that Hobby Lobby, she chose to pick out this ugly, multicolored donkey. In fact, from the ride from the store to our house, which is not a long ride. In Dubuque, you can get anywhere in 15 minutes. In that time, she fell in love with this piñata. And so, as soon as we got home, I explained to her that we were going to take this very large bag of candy, we were going to put it in this piñata, we're going to hang it up, and when your friends come over, we're going to take this bat and I held up this bat, and we're going to smash that piñata, and all the candy will come out. And a horrible look came over her face. She clutched that donkey close to her chest and said, no one is going to hurt my donkey. And I said, but honey, what about the candy? How are your friends going to get their candy? Oh, that's okay. We'll just put the candy in their little goodie bags and they can take them home after the party. To this day, in her closet, that ugly, faded donkey sits on one of her shelves. The Apostle Peter reminds us of the costly nature of Jesus' sacrificial death on our behalf. He declared, for you know that it wasn't with perishable things like money, like silver, like gold that you were redeemed. But it was the precious blood of Christ. A lamb without blemish or defect that you were bought. And I think that's why God had them make the lamb be personally theirs so that they would fully understand that an innocent one would have to die in their place so that they wouldn't have to. After the temple was built in Jerusalem by King Solomon, all Jewish males were required to travel to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover. And according to Jewish tradition, No other feast generated as much messianic fervor among the Jews as did the events surrounding Passover. They were easily excited during this festival. That's why that phrase, Hosanna, blessed is the one who comes in the name of the Lord. They were looking for their Messiah. That's why at the Passover table, Elijah has a seat. Because before Messiah can come, Elijah must first come. And when Elijah would come, Messiah would come. There was much messianic fervor. The Jewish historian Josephus tells us about the Passover celebration in Jerusalem. He said worshipers could swell into the millions during this festival. And that's why the Roman procurators greatly increased the number of Roman troops in case there was an uprising, public rioting. This is why the Jewish authorities themselves feared to arrest Christ at this time, but waited for a more opportune moment to grab him, to arrest him. Now, according to the Mishnah, 
the Passover preparations would also take place in the temple on the tenth day of that first month. And about 9 a.m. in the morning, after the morning sacrifice had been delivered by the high priest, the high priest would then go down from the Temple Mount. He would go out of the city walls, down to Bethlehem, there to inspect and to select the lamb. The one that was at least a year old, the one that was a male lamb, the one that was without fault, without blemish. The high priest would select that lamb who would serve as the nation's Passover lamb who would be sacrificed on the 14th day of that month. And while the high priest was down in Bethlehem, and by the way, Bethlehem was the place where all of the temple lambs were bred, were taken care of until the time of worship at the temple. And isn't it interesting how the Lamb of God the one who takes away the sin of the world, he too had to be born in Bethlehem. So the high priest would go and select the lamb. While he was doing that, the Levites who were not serving in the temple, they would make a parade route and they would have branches, palm branches, getting ready for the high priest who, with that tethered lamb, would walk that lamb into the city walls, up to the Temple Mount. And as he did, as he paraded that lamb to the Temple Mount, the Levites would begin to shout, Hosanna in the highest! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord! And they would wave their palm branches. And when the people in the city and the visitors for the for the festival would hear this, they would grab their palm branches and come. And they would join in the parade. And that lamb would be taken to the Temple Mount and it would be staked in the courtyard for all to see. And there it was to be inspected for those five days because if it was going to serve as the nation's Passover lamb, it had to meet all the qualifications. I find it interesting. Where do we find the Lord Jesus Christ after His triumphal entry? And by the way, the Gospel writers don't tell us about this parade. We get it from tradition. But isn't it interesting, as Jesus came into this city, how the people waved their palm branches as he rode on that donkey and they shouted, Hosanna in the highest! Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord! The Pharisees sized up the situation, saw what was going on, said, He's not our Messiah! And so they tell the disciples of Jesus, shut these people up. Jesus says, even if the people are silenced, the very rocks would cry out. For this is the appointed day of the Lord. You cannot stop God's calendar. You cannot stop God's plan. It will go forth. And so Jesus, the Lamb of God, comes into the city. And where does He go? He goes to the Temple Mount. And where do we find the Savior of the world for the next four days? Why, He is on the Temple Mount. And He is teaching. And He is refuting. Every group, the scribes, the Pharisees, 
the experts in the laws, the Herodians, everyone is trying to trap him, to trip him up in his words, to disqualify him for serving as the Lamb of God. But none could. In fact, the Bible texts and the Gospels tell us as he turns their defenses on their heads, the crowds are even more amazed at his teaching and worship him all the more. It's having the opposite effect. He is the unblemished, perfect Lamb of God. Why, even the Roman procurator, Pontius Pilate, declares, I find no fault in him. Jesus Christ meets every qualification to serve as the Lamb of God. Our time is quickly passing. And I have many, many more details here. But I know what you're thinking, and I'm thinking the same thing. Let's cut to the chase. Let's land the plane, preacher. We have a dinner to go to. So let me just close with this. As you study this, and you see this elsewhere in the Scriptures, I would that your heart would be amazed at God's incredible, prophetic, redemptive plan. Not only in this feast, but in every one of them. God foreshadows for us how through His Son, He would redeem the world and take away the sin of every human being who chooses to eat of His flesh, who chooses to make the Passover lamb their own. It's an individual decision that every human must make. Will I choose God's provision for the expiation, the ridding of my sin? Or will I choose another way? I have chosen Jesus Christ to be my Lamb, to wash me from my sins, to give me new life and life eternally, an eternal relationship with our Father in heaven. After all, God has provided him for all. You might think that Sunday is my favorite day of the week, but it's not. Don't get me wrong, I like Sundays. And you're thinking, well, he's got it. He's a preacher. He's got to say Wednesday, midweek meeting night. No, but Wednesday is, but not for that reason. Don't get me wrong, I like going to church on Sundays and Wednesdays, but Wednesday is not my favorite day of the week. For those reasons. It's my favorite day of the week because of what happens in the morning. I walk out of my house on Wednesday mornings and I go to a place next to the garage and I carry out our trash receptacle and our recycling receptacle and I set that stuff curbside. And something miraculous happens when I come home on Wednesday after work. That bag of trash is gone. Never again to be handled or dealt with. Now I have seven people in my house. Trash to you might not be a big deal. But in a house with seven people, we produce a lot of trash. In fact, we're only allowed a 35-pound bag. And so... Tuesday night, I am stuffing down that bag, trying to get as much trash 
as possible into that bag so that when Wednesday comes and I lug that thing out to the curb, it's gone. Never again to be dealt with. Oh, the joy that comes over me. In fact, I almost turn charismatic when I come home from work on Wednesdays. And that is exactly what God did for me many years ago and offers to do to any person who chooses to take the Passover lamb as their own. The Lamb of God is available to any and to all who chooses to metaphorically eat His flesh to take them as their own. To wash their sins away. To be free from the judgment and the guilt of sin. And that's what Passover from eternity past, as God designed it, was meant to foreshadow, was meant to picture what Christ did some 2,000 years ago in the city of Jerusalem. The place where He showed Abraham to offer His Son as a foreshadowing of how God would offer His Son as the Lamb of God. Let's pray. Father, we are grateful for Your plan of redemption. And as we look at some of the details and press upon our hearts and our minds how much You love us, the lengths that You have gone to and through in the sending of Your Son to wash our sins away. And so, Father, I pray this morning, if there's anyone here who's never trusted the Lamb of God, the Lord Jesus Christ, that you would stir their hearts to consider these things and to do it, to make the Lamb their own. And for those of us who know Him, may it stir our hearts to love Him all the more and appreciate how He shed His precious blood in our place on our behalf. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.